Matthew chapter 14, uh, the first two pictures we get as we come here is there's two feasts that are kind of set in contrast. There is one at the house of Herod with Herodias and his uh, daughter, adopted daughter-in-law, Salome, of drunkenness and the death of John the Baptist and so forth. And then it moves right from there to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. It's a very different kind of feast. Um, You know, you, you look at the one with all the opulence, all of the power, all of the earthly influence, uh, and then you look at the other one with five loaves and two fish. We're even told that they're barley loaves, which were the for the poorest. They were the, you know, the the most meager type even of loaves. But what happens there, no doubt, makes a much greater impression than anything that could happen here. You know, it's interesting. I remember years ago uh, when Mother Teresa died. And, uh, and I believe she was a believer, a misbeliever, not a disbeliever, and uh, served the Lord with all of her heart. And, you know, she had a bad heart, you know, and, and the Lord kept it ticking and ticking and ticking and ticking until the week that Princess Di, Princess Diana died in a car wreck. Mother Teresa died in the same week. And I thought, Lord, what a picture, you know. Because there's so many people that want to live like Princess Diana and die like Mother Teresa, you know. Let me die the death of the righteous. You know, they said when she died, she had two bucks or something to her name. She had hardly anything. But they took her through the streets in uh, Calcutta in the cart that uh, Mahatma Gandhi had been in. And they said they've never seen bigger crowds, you know. And these are Hindus and Muslims and so these two feasts this evening are put in front of us, one at Princess Dies and one at, uh, one at Mother Teresa's, you know, one with all the opulence and the beauty and everything, and the other is Spartan. It's, it's humble. It's stilling. Um, and we're going to look at that. So uh, we meet a cast of characters here as we enter into this chapter. It says, at that time, we're approximately a year before the crucifixion, this is, the, the crowds we'll see will be going up to the Passover one year before the Passover when Jesus is crucified. So at this time, Herod the Tetrarch, he heard of the fame of Jesus, and he said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Now, it gives us those two verses and tells us about his conscience and his struggle. And, and he's ascribing this to the resurrection of John the Baptist. And then as we get to verse 3, it starts to tell us, the, it gives us the backdrop for his struggle in verses 1 and 2. It says, Herod had laid hands on John and bound him and put him in prison. Now for Herodias' sake his brother Philip's wife. So an interesting picture. Herod, and you know, you don't want to confuse your Herods. This is Herod Antipas. 
Um, there's Herod Agrippa, there's Herod Philip, there's Herod Philip II, there's Herod Archelaus, there's, Her- you know, there's, there's a collection of them. They're all scoundrels, pretty much. Um, the, it started with Herod the Great, who uh, was about four foot eleven. He named himself Herod the Great, by the way, not Herod the Short, Herod the Great. And he was just mean. He was just a mean little man, you know. And sometimes it goes that way, you know. Yeah. Sometimes you have, you know, a, a German shepherd or something, and they're nice, a big dog lean on you. But you know how chihuahuas are. <laughs> they have an attitude, I think, because they're small and they can't get over it. You know, I think chihuahuas are part of the fall with those weepy eyes and that little funny face. And, you know, they were probably beautiful before Adam sinned, but they aren't now. So he's he just a mean guy, you know. He, he, they claim to be Idumeans, the herds, which are Esau's descendant that live in the area of what is Jordan today, and claim to be a half-Jew. Uh, we don't know if that's true. Herod the Great was the one who slaughtered the innocents. He sent to Bethlehem and co- killed all the babes from two years old and younger uh, when he heard about the birth of Christ from uh, the wise men. But he's a brilliant brilliant builder. So the Caesars left them there. Caesar said, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son or his wife because he had uh, nine wives and at least seven sons and he killed a number of his wives and killed a number of his sons. And Caesar said, you'd be safer to be his pig because he claims to be half Jewish so he's not going to kill his pig. Uh, I'd rather be his pig than his wife than a wife or a a son, but he built Caesarea uh, by the sea and, and had that finished. They, you go there today, they had divers that laid foundations under the water in salt water and learned how to pour concrete that would, that would solidify underwater when they built these incredible bulwarks and piers and so forth. Uh, he built the temple in Jerusalem over four, about 46, 48 years in construction. Uh, one of the wonders of the world, really. He built the Herodian south of there. He built this palace and prison over uh, in the area of what's Jordan today on the east side of the Dead Sea. And then on the west side of the Dead Sea, south, he built, you know, the, there the... There's the, the fortress uh, that, is, that is there where you watch the movie where they all surrounded, you know, the Romans were there. You can still see the Roman encampments and so forth today. It's remarkable. So um, you, you look at what happened in the land because of this little guy. He was a master builder, whether it was the Herodian or Masada or the temple or whatever it was. And he has nine wives. That kind of brings us into our story here. He has at least seven sons. He has Herod Aristobulus. He'll play into our picture. Herod Antipater II. Herod Antipas, which we're going to look at tonight. Herod Antipas um, is, gets more print than any Herod in the New Testament. Um, There are two Agrippas, but you kind of look at them when you get to uh, the book of Acts. Herod Antipas was called a tetrarch. Uh, 
that's because tetrarch means fourth. A fourth of the kingdom was given to him when his father, Herod the Great, died. And Herod the Great was so mean, he gave his cabinet this list of people, notable people, all through Jerusalem in the area, that should be slaughtered the day that he died so that the whole land would be mourning. And he died eaten of worms in Tiberias, and, you know, just miserable, bloated, eaten alive of worms. It's just free information, so you can have a mental picture of that when you go to sleep tonight. And, uh, and when he died, his, his military, the people were, didn't listen to that, and there was a celebration instead of mourning uh, when, when Herod died. A fourth of his kingdom went to Philip, a fourth of it went to... Um, Herod Antipas, and half of it went to Archelaus. Archelaus is so cruel, he killed several thousand Jews, that he's called to Rome and then banished to Gaul. Um, Herod Antipas here was a tetrarch, and he got a fourth of Herod the Great's kingdom. So he had Galilee, Syria, the area of Decapolis, and then all the way down the Pyrea, um, where they would cross over to go up to Jerusalem. Uh, there was Herod Philip II. Uh, he was also a tetrarch. Uh, so you, you go through and you see all of these sons. Now, Herod Aristubulus, you remember, I want you to keep this straight. He's the first guy I mentioned. He was the father of Herod Agrippa II. You with me? He, who's in the book of Acts. And he had a daughter named Herodias. Herodias marries Philip, not Philip II, Philip I. So confusing, not enough confusion. And they move to Rome. So Herodias and her husband Philip I, uh, who is her half-uncle, he's her niece because Aristobulus is Philip's brother. And she's born from a different mom, but... So she's a half-niece to her half-uncle, who she marries, and she moves to Rome. She's living in Rome. Then Herod Antipas, who we're looking at here this evening, when his father dies, Herod the Great, he's 17 years old when he becomes a tetrarch. Remarkably, 17 years old, and he's ruling a fourth of the territory. And then as a few years passed, he ends up marrying this Nabataean princess. Um, Her father... Aretas IV was, they called him an Arabian king, but then Arabia wasn't Saudi Arabia, it was just the Arabah, the desert in the south, and he ruled from Petra. And his territory adjoined the territory of Herod Antipas, so it was good business. This happened all through Europe for hundreds and hundreds of years. Everybody would marry, if you, if you knew another king in another country, you married his daughter, And uh, either that daughter was loyal to her father and spied on you for her father, or she really fell in love with you and you married her, then she spied on her father for you. This this is Europe. That's why Europeans are the way they are. So so at 17, he, he takes the area. Then he ends up marrying this Nabataean princess, the daughter of Aretas IV, And Herod Antipas then, when he's a little older, he goes to Rome because he wants to be called King Herod. When you hear of King Herod, Antipas wanted that title. So as he goes there, he stays with his brother, Philip I, not Philip II, 
And as he's there, he ends up having an affair with Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because she's more attracted to him because he's going to have the title king. She wants to be a queen. So they get in this affair, and his wife, the princess, flees and goes back to her father, which starts a war, by the way, between what was what were the Arabians then, and the Romans, I'm sure, didn't appreciate that. So then he leaves Rome with Herodias, and she has a daughter named Salome. Josephus, the historian, who's trustworthy, tells us that was the girl who's going to dance at the party, Herodias' daughter, and goes back into the area of Galilee, and, uh, and there they get married. Now, John the Baptist is on the scene. He's not politically correct. He's not wearing Versace. He's, he doesn't have a Rolex watch. He's eating bugs, and he's out in the wilderness screaming at everybody, and he points at now, she's married to her second uncle now. He, he points at them and says, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's life. You're living in adultery and in incest. The law didn't, you know, obviously forbid both of those. So he just screams it in front of the multitude. He's not afraid. not politically correct. This is, I serve God. I, I don't serve man. And the king I serve is a much higher king than you are. And, of course, what it does is it gives Herodias boiling bone marrow. Shakespeare said, you know, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. I say boiling bone marrow. She's got boiling bone marrow, and she is mad, and she wants to kill him. And that sets the scene. We're going to see her daughter, Salome, uh, who's a chip off the old block, by the way. Salome ends up marrying Philip II, who is her uncle, and then she becomes her mother's sister-in-law, when she marries him, then she leaves Philip II and marries Aristobulus, not Aristobulus I, but Aristobulus, the son of Archelaus, and then she becomes her mother's great niece. So she's her mother's daughter, her mother's sister-in-law, and her mother's great niece. This is a dysfunctional family. And look, there are families like this everywhere today. Uh, you know, this was the swamp then. You know, so. Uh, that sets the scene so that you just, I'm trusting you have all the Herods straight in your mind because you don't want to confuse them. You want all these Herods straight. So it, sa it says, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. Therefore, mighty works do show themselves forth in him. Now remember, and we get to 16, he's going to say to disciples, who do men say that I am? And some are going to say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. So this is stirring. Here's the interesting thing. Herod is a Sadducee. And the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. Uh, they didn't believe in angels. Some say that's why they're sad, you see. Um, <laughs> The, the Pharisees believed in all that, but different. So the Sadducean, Annas, who was ruling in Caiaphas, were Sadducees. And he's tied in with, Jesus said, look out for the leaven of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Herod. He's tied in with them. The interesting thing is, in Greek mythology, if, if someone rose from the dead, if they were a famous teacher or philosopher or a prophet, 
And if they died and were resurrected, then the Greeks believed then that they would then have supernatural power to do miracles. So here's a Sadducee who doesn't believe in the miraculous or resurrection, and his conscience is bothering him so bad that the only thing he can say is, this has got to be John the Baptist. You know, because he's going to cut his head off and they bring it into the party on a plate. You know, we're going to, and that sticks with you. You know, that's a mental image that doesn't go away. And he, he, he heard John the Baptist gladly. He considered him a holy man. And Herodias, with her boiling bone marrow, you know, gets him finally to kill John the Baptist. And his conscience is bothering him. Now he's saying to his, his servants, look, this, is, this has got to be John the Baptist risen from the dead. That's why these works, Greek philosophy, are showing themselves forth in him. For Herod, it's telling you now why. Why did he have this guilty conscience? Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him into prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. Because John said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You, you know, you took him to task. Now, he puts him in prison. There's the, they found the, the fortress called Makaros. It's on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. It's 3,500 foot above the Dead Sea, um, which is the lowest place on the face of the earth, by the way, uh, lower than Death Valley. It's, it's, it's 3,500 foot above that. It's this, like Masada, kind of like this plateau. They built this remarkable fortress in it. And in the center of the fortress, and they've uncovered them, there are two dungeons that went way down. No windows, obviously, no air, black as night, you know, no, no light. And John the Baptist is placed in one of those. Now, somehow he has disciples that are allowed to come and talk to him in the process, probably because Herod Antipas had some regard for him, considered him a prophet or a holy man, and said he heard him gladly. So he let some of his guys come and see him. When, her, when, when John the Baptist heard, you know, when he was in prison, it says Jesus departed and went into Galilee where he is. And John the Baptist thinking, you know, do me a favor, go ask him. Is he the one that should come or do we look for another? You know, the whole process that took place now. He's in this place for 10 months, Josephus tells us. This is a guy who grew up in the wilderness, left us, you know, Zachariah and Elizabeth at some early age, He's a guy out there with eating locusts and wild honey and preaching, living under the stars, living in the open. You know, the, in fact, he's living in the wilderness, which is a desert. The Hebrew word for desert means to hear or to listen remarkably. And now all of that sky has been taken away. All of those hills have been taken away. The Jordan River has been taken away, and he's in a black hole. The sinners are upstairs in the palace having a great time partying. And the guy who was always obedient is in the black hall. I'm just saying that this evening because if you're in the black hall, it doesn't mean he's mad at you. If the sinners are all partying somewhere and you're in the black hall, John the Baptist was completely obedient to the Lord. He ends up in that mess for obeying the Lord and being faithful. And meantime, here's everybody upstairs. You know, and you think this is kind of the party some people want to be at. Everybody is cool that's there. There's music. There's lights. You know, all of this stuff. 
And, and uh, Herod and his friends are getting soused. They're drinking wine. They're all getting plastered at this party. And John said to him, he said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, to have her. So look, remember, John the Baptist went forward, remember, in the power and in the spirit of Elijah. Now, in the spirit of Elijah, he has his own Ahab and Jezebel. You know, very interesting. John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And when he would have put him to death, Herod was afraid because the multitude, they counted him as a prophet. You know, it's interesting. It tells us this in Mark in regards to the scene here. It says, uh, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and holy and he observed him. And that idea means to preserve. He, he cared for him. And when he heard him, he did many things. And he heard him gladly. You know, Herod's convicted enough to hear the truth, but he's not convicted enough to obey it. He would hear John gladly. He says here, he, would, he get, gets to the point, and we find out as for Herodias, his, his wife, he would have put him to death, but he feared the people. They held him to be a prophet. But, that's where it changes in that but. When Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias, which is not named here for us, we find out from current historians that her name was Salome. Herodias, the daughter of Herodias, danced before them and pleased Herod. Now, History tells us at the end of one of these banquets, when all of these guys and Herod and all his buddies sitting around, they're full, they're burping, you know, they're drinking. And it would be typical then to have some belly dancer, some young girl come, and or a number of young girls come with some type of a, you know, a sensual, you know, it was the, it was the peak of the party for the heathen and so forth. So... It's just like Herodias sends her own daughter into this. Moms have such a huge influence on their daughters. You know, uh, I'll stop right there. You know, sometimes we'll see a young girl and say, come on, man, you're not supposed to be dressed. That's too revealing. You shouldn't be dressed that way. And then the mom comes in and we think, well, that explains the whole thing, you know. So... She dances before Herod. Look at verse 7. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. That's why Proverbs tells us strong drink is a mocker. And she, look at this, being before instructed. Her mom told her before she went in to dance. Being before instructed of her mother said, if when he tells you, when he makes this stupid thing, Say, give me here, the idea is now, immediately, John the Baptist's head on a charger. That's not a dodge. It's a, it's a platter. It's a, it's a plate. So, so, you know, she's so angry, she knows how to work Herod. So she sends her daughter in. Imagine this. 
to be sultry and sexual and to dance before them. And she said, you know, he's going to say something stupid. It tells us he promises to give her whatever she wants to half of his kingdom. It's not his kingdom. It belongs to Rome. I'm sure the Romans would be really happy to hear that a drunk guy's given he's given you know 100 square miles to a to a belly dancer at a drunk party. You know he promised to give her anything she asked for, and her mom said, even knowing beforehand he's going to do that. When he does that, I want John's head. I'm tired of him shooting him out. He humiliated me. You know I, I'm tired. I don't. You, this is what I want you to ask for. And the king then was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him, his pride is on trial, those who sat with him at dinner at meat. He commanded it, <laughs> he commanded it to be given her ahead. He commanded it to be given her. And then he sent and beheaded. John in prison. Imagine that. I'm sure it was one swipe of the sword. It wasn't prolonged. Uh, in one instant, John was free. Herod was still a prisoner to his lust and to his better half or worse half or whatever. In one swing, John was free. He was out of the prison. He was in glory. Just imagine. That's not a bad way to go, you know. So much better than being eaten by a shark or, you know, tortured. Just one swing and you're out of here. You know, just think of that. John is free. He sent and he beheaded John in prison. And his head, not him. This is so interesting, the language here. His head, not John, his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel and then she brought it to her mom. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. You know, she takes the head of this guy on a platter and gives it to her mom. And his disciples came, and they took up the body and buried it. Not John. His body. His body's an it. It's not him. His disciples came, and they took up the body and buried it. And then they went and they told Jesus. John the Baptist had been a good teacher. He had told him he's the one. That's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. You know, he's the bridegroom. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom, you know. And so they know, isn't it interesting, when he then dies, they go to Jesus. Uh, that's a great thing for us to learn in the worst of times to go to Jesus go to him. I, I think Jesus, it's his cousin, you know, I think, I think it's, he, he had every human emotion, and I'm sure when they came that Jesus sat with them and consoled them. I, sometimes I wonder, what did he say to them? You know, he must have said, oh, man, just, he's happier now than you could believe. You know, he's free. He's, he's not in that dark hole anymore, you know, just, you know, well, we took his body. That's all it is. And the resurrection, you know, the, the, that's when it'll get up again. We'll see him with grasshopper legs stuck in his beard. You know, we'll see him again. But I'm sure Jesus consoled them and talked with them, you know. And I think, you know, I'm so 
slow sometimes, you know. I, I need to learn just to run to him as fast as I can when something heart-wrenching is taking place and to know that he's the same as it says in Hebrews 13:8, yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. And that I can come to him a tough day, tough circumstance, betrayed, somebody cuts my head off, whatever it is, I can choose it off. I can go to him and he's consoling. I believe that with all my heart. Now, it says, when Jesus heard this, he departed from there by ship into a desert place apart. Now, we're, we're told in the other Gospels, he actually said to the guys, come on, let's, let's, let's get away together for a while. Let's, and and the, there's, a, there's a place, those of you who have been to Israel with us, on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee called Tagatha, on, on the left, which is an old religious site. But the real site is in Bethsaida, and they've discovered that over on the right side, on the other side of the Jordan of the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And, and that is uh, the territory of Herod Philip. So it was out of the jurisdiction of Herod Agrippa. And he says to the guys, let's go. And they must have thought, oh, far out. Get alone with the Lord for a couple of days. And he was sensitive to their need. And, and Jesus, you know, how many times we read that he got up and went alone apart somewhere to pray. In his human flesh, he was very sensitive to the need that he had to be in the Father's presence. And I think, again, Lord, I am such a slow learner. You know what it's like when you get with the Lord and you pray and you get the dump. And all of a sudden you realize his presence and it's so stilling sometimes in the room. And you come away from it going, duh, why don't I do that all the time, Right? Then you think, but then you lose your mind again. It says, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there, look, by ship, it says, into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion. So, on a clear day, on any of the hills, you can see the whole perimeter of the Sea of Galilee. It's 15 miles long, 7 miles wide. On a clear day, you can, the whole thing comes into view because it's low, 600 foot below sea level, and it's got all the hills around it. So evidently, you know, when, when Jesus heads in that direction, some of the people see him. He's probably leaving Capernaum. And they spread word. He's going, he's going, he's going. So they start running around. We're going to find out it's 5,000 men plus women and children. So you're between 10 and 15,000 people. I wonder from the boat if they could see them making a cloud of dust running around the, you know, running around the Sea of Galilee. Well, there's a mom somewhere that morning, and her kid is taking off. She says, where are you going? He says, I'm going to go hear the master. Everybody's running over there. She said, you wash your hands? Yeah, did you brush your teeth? Yeah. Did you, do you have a lunch? Do you have a PBJ? No. She said, here, take these loaves and fishes and go with you. Get out of here. You know, just she had no idea she was going to be feeding a multitude and end up in all four Gospels. There's a mom who was taking care of her child the proper way, in contrast to Herodias taking care of Salome to serve her own purposes. You know, so this mom, you know, gives the kid the BBJ, has no idea what's going to happen 
on that day. Just like the mom in the sea, the, the, the fish's mom had no idea what her little fishes would feed 10,000 people either. So I don't know why I think about those things. When Jesus heard of it, he departed from there. He went into a place apart. When the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth, and he saw the great multitude, and he was moved with compassion. As the idea is bowels in the deepest part of his being, he's moved with compassion. And it says, and he healed them. He healed their sick. Look. Mark says that he taught them many things. Luke says he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So the picture is here, he sees the multitudes. The guys are probably going, hey, hey, you know, and, but because they're going to say, send them away, Lord, send them away. It's late in the day. They're going to get no food here. Send them away. That, that's become their philosophy in certain of the scenes as their ministry wears on. It's like, send them away, Lord, you know. It says he's moved with compassion. His bowels are moved. He looks at them. He sees them. And he begins to heal their sick. They must have been dragging sick folk around that northern end of the Sea of Galilee to get to him. He heals them. Then Mark tells us he teaches them many things. So he feeds them spiritually. He's teaching them. And then Luke says, and he's speaking to them about the kingdom of God. What was that like, you know? Now he's going to demonstrate it with five loaves and two fish. But he's speaking to them about the kingdom of God, this multitude as they're there and they're listening to him. And verse 15 said, and it was evening. That's three to six in the afternoon. Evening sacrifice took place in Jerusalem at three o'clock. It was evening. His disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place. We're out in the middle of nowhere. Not a desert, it's wilderness. And the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages, plural. That's why we have the idea of where this was. And buy themselves vittles. Because Granny and Ellie may have a shop there and they can get themselves some vittles, it says. Um, Jesus says unto them, they need not depart. You know, he looks at them. They're saying, Lord, send them away. We're, we're going to find out that he's going to, he says, well, you know, no need to send them away. You give them something. It's an imperative. You need to do this. You need to give them something to eat. And Philip's going to say, well, you know, we got 40 bucks here. What are we going to do? What's that among so many? And then uh, one of the other disciples comes and says, well, we, you know, we got five loaves and two fish. You know, what are we going to do with those? I'm thankful that it was a child that had the five loaves and two fish because it was an adult. They kind of put it up their sleeve and look around. Well, this would just start a riot if I pulled this out. It's just like a kid to say, Hey, I'll, I'll share my five loaves and two fish with 15,000 people. No problem, you know. And, and, and they bring it to the Lord. It's, it's so interesting. The Lord says, you feed them. Now look, this is the only miracle before the, the resurrection that's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle before the resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels. That tells us what kind of an impression this day made on the hearts of these men. 
that all and John wrote about 60 years after the other guys had written about it. He says, you give them something to eat. They don't have to go away. And they said unto him, all we have here is five loaves and two fishes. We don't, we don't have anything. And he said to them, bring them hither to me. Now, that's the lesson they're going to learn. That's the lesson they're going to learn. Look, sometimes we think, you know, Lord, what do I have? I look at Philadelphia. I look at my family. I look at the needs. I don't have nothing. I didn't go to Bible school. I don't have, you know, I don't have any kind of gifts. I, I, I can't do anything. You know, you got five loaves and two fish? Bring them to him. All the difference in the world is you and I are learning we're not manufacturers. We're just distributors. You and I are learning the reservoir belongs to him. We can bring somebody a drink, but it's his water. He's not calling us to produce the miracle. He's just saying, what do you got? Lord, oh, I got, you know, I got four kids and diapers and this pile of wash that's eternal and never goes away. I think I'm in purgatory already. You know. And the Lord said, well, why don't you just bring that to me? Bring it to me. Lord, I got a broken heart. Ripped off my, my family. What can I ever do? Bring it to me. Bring it hither. Bring it to me. Put it in my hands. Think of what he's going to do with a couple of fishermen here in this scene. With five loaves and two fishes. That's the, the lesson they're going to learn here. And they're going to need it into the book of Acts. They're going to need it as they go out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. They're going to need it when they're burned at the stake and crucified and martyred. They're going to, they're going to know Jesus can provide everything that's needed. Not everything we want, but everything that's needed. He says to them, bring them hither to me. How wonderful. And then he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. It's green. It's the season of the Passover. Uh, Mark tells us he made them sit down in groups of fifties and a hundreds. It's a word that speaks of gardens. They're sitting down in these groups. Now, imagine the scene here. Uh, Jesus says, give me the five loaves and two fish. And then he sends his disciples out and says, now make them sit down in groups. How long does it take to get 15,000 people to sit down in groups of 50s and 100s? And you know the way people are. I don't want to sit here. Can I sit over there with my friends? And are you are going over there? You know, you, you can imagine, you know. And, and they're saying, what's he doing up there? What's he doing? And they're thinking... Um, I, I ain't telling them. You want to tell them? Got five loaves, and he's gonna cut them in itty bitty pieces. You know, like, what's he gonna do? I gonna tell them. Look, if we run now, they might not eat us. You know, just you know. He, he, what are they thinking as they're making them sit down? And the Lord wants them to go through this process. He wants us to go through it in our minds. They're organized in everything without provision, just in obedience. They're doing a simple thing. Make them sit down here. You know, you, you, you don't, you just, you know, elementary school education, you can do that. Just make them sit down here. Make them sit down. Divide them up in groups. And they get all the people 
sat down. People must be saying, what are we doing? Is he going to feed us? Why are we? You can imagine the questions. He gets them all sitting down on the grass. And then he took the five loaves, the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he said grace. You know, O King of the Universe, O Lord, King of the Universe, great God that bringeth forth bread from the earth. You know, the Talmud tells us probably what the prayer was. But, you know, God is great, God is good, and we thank him for this food. You can imagine the disciples, what is he doing? He's saying grace. He's asking his father to bless the five loaves and two fish. And you can imagine, you know, you know, 10 to 15,000 people sitting there saying, what's he doing up there? What's he doing? You know, just, just imagine. And what are the guys thinking, you know? What are the guys thinking? How many times do we think it's not enough in our lives? It's not enough. It's not enough, Lord. It's not enough. It's not enough, Lord. The need is huge around us. It's not enough. I can't even tell my relatives this is all you've given me. I can't even tell the people around me that you let me go through this. It's not enough, Lord. I don't know how many times I've said that. As I go and grow in grace and the knowledge of my Lord and Savior, how many times I find myself still saying it. It's not enough. He blessed it, and he broke it, and gave the loaves to his disciples, and the disciples distributed to the multitudes. Try to understand what's happening here. You know, the, the, the language indicates he kept breaking. So he's got these loaves. As fast as he's breaking them off, it's growing back in his hand. He's producing molecules and atoms. This is the creator of the universe. This is creation. As he's breaking the loaves, breaking the fishes, it's multiplying in his hand. And you can imagine the guys, they're going out. They're, they're giving, you know, food to the people over here, over here, you know, and you don't get seconds until they get first. You know, just, and they must be passing each other, walking in the middle of these 50s and 100s, saying, are you, you, you believe what he's doing now? Are you, are, is this blowing your mind? Look what he's doing. What is it? You know, just, you can imagine them, the impression on their, because they saw him bless the five loaves and two fish, and now they keep taking the five loaves and two fish to the multitude from his hand. That's the way it works from his hands. And it says they did all eat and they were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained 12 basket full, not 13, 12. It says the multitude was all filled. That is the word glutted. We get gluttony from that, you know. It's not gluttony if the Lord's given it to you, though, you know. Just, you know, did they have seconds? Did they have thirds? The idea is, you know, when you're so full, you're kind of trying to loosen your belt under the table so nobody's looking. You're kind of wishing, I wish I was on my sweatsuit. I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack, you know. Just, they're all like that. Burp, they're burping, they're leaning back. They're all glutted. And then he sends them out to collect leftovers. The Talmud said you couldn't throw leftovers away. They had to be collected. It was a religious duty. Go on out and collect the leftovers. Understand this. They bring back 12 baskets of leftovers. 12 disciples do that. 
12 baskets. That means that when he was breaking the loaves and fishes, he thought, okay, well, this person is going to want seconds. Oh, this one's going to need thirds. I got to have 12 baskets left over. He knew exactly what was happening in his hands as he was distributing. And he knew when he was finished and they couldn't eat any more. There were 12 baskets of fragments spread out across that multitude. And what was it like for those men who felt ripped off because they didn't get the rest they wanted? What was it like for them to come back to the top of the hill that evening, each with their own basket, and to look into the face of their master? Did Jesus say, hey, Peter, why don't you say grace? No wonder it's written in all four Gospels. Whatever happened there that we don't have, what was their conversation like? What was it like when they sat around them eating? You know, Jesus said, I have, when he was in Samaria, they asked him about eating. He says, I have meat to eat you know not of. You know, there are other things that fill me. And he must have been looking at him thinking, you guys are going to have to know when you go out that I can provide. You're going to have to. And, and I'm sure the rest they experienced there was much more than the rest they would have experienced if the crowds hadn't come and they just got to hang out with Jesus. The rest that they received then would be a rest that would journey with them until they stepped into glory. The lesson they learned there gave them rest for the rest of their lives. Two banquets, two feasts are put before us. One with everything the world has. One with everything the world that hates Christ, hates Christianity, hates John the Baptist, hates righteousness. And they have everything, don't they? It seems that way sometimes. How can this happen to, to these people? These are good people, this godly person. Why is this happening? You know, and then meantime upstairs, all the insanity is going on. And then the other feast, barley loaves that the poorest people ate. I guarantee you, when they ate those loaves and fishes, the crowd, they were the best barley loaves they ever bit into in their whole life. I guarantee you that. Those fish, oh man, that, that, those fish that day, little smoked fishies that he kept breaking, that was the best fish anybody ate. That's why they were glutted. It, was like, it wasn't like, I ain't eating this. You know, did they, did we wash our hands. Did they eat this when you, you know, the, the people ate until they couldn't breathe. It was wonderful. That's how good it was. And his disciples sitting around him at the end of that day, they learned something that gave them more rest than if they'd have had what they wanted at the beginning. And he knows that about us. He knows that about us. Read ahead. Verse 22 says this, And straightway Jesus constrained the disciples to get into a ship. It says, it says there were 5,000 men plus women and children in Eaton. And it says in John chapter 6 that now the crowd wants to take Jesus and make him king. They want to take him by force and make him king. Jesus says to the guys, get into the boat and get out of here. You know, it, 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 that influence is more dangerous 
for you than the storm you're going to head into. Because they want to make me, that's why people are going to, you know, you come up with a vaccine for COVID, now the whole world wonders after you. You come up with the Antichrist is going to feed people, everybody's going to wonder after. They wanted him to be the bread king, Grandpa Stroman. It was, Jesus is going to say, it's because I fed you, it's not because you understood the miracle. But he gets his guys away from it. He doesn't want it to influence them. And he sends them away. And then he spoke to the multitude, which tells us all the guys are away when he does that. He must have sat with Matthew and said, you know, when I sent you guys away that day, this is what I said to the crowd when I talked to them. There's no other way they could have known. So what an interesting picture. You think of the intimacy that was there between the Lord and his disciples I get challenged at both feasts here. There's lessons for me at both of these feasts. And uh, and I think, Lord, I'm still growing. You know, I've been walking with you uh, or doing my best to walk with you for getting on, getting on to 50 years now, you know. And uh, I am still an idiot. I am still learning. I'm still embracing. I'm still understanding. Well, of course, you know, that's going to go on and on and on and on and on in the ages to come. We will always be approaching and never arriving at the full stature of the Son of God. He's conforming us into his image and likeness, but that is eternal. We are not. That means we'll always be approaching and never arriving. It says in the ages to come we'll be learning about his mercy and about his grace. That's something. That means that you and I are probably get to see each other in the crowd and say, you believe what he's doing now? You believe what he's doing now? You know, you know. just just think of what it's going to be, what he has for us and what's set in front of us. The world is crazy. Go home and watch the news. You see what's going on around us. You know, bite your fingernails, but get back to the Bible and, and try to understand, Lord, what are you saying to me in this COVID age, in this age of anger, in this age, you know, where all these different things are going on? I'll tell you what's happening. Nah. No, no, I'll tell you what's happening. I'll tell you what's happening. The stage is being set for the return of Jesus Christ. The stage is being set for the return of the Lord. You look around, you see what's going on militarily, you look what's going on around the world, you look what's happening in our nation here. You know, because America couldn't be the last great hope of mankind. We're still trying to keep people from breaking into our country. Most other countries are trying to keep people from getting out. America can't be the last great hope of mankind. It has to be Jesus Christ that's the last great hope of mankind. Pray for revival. Pray for the message. Pray for the feast on the hill instead of the party in the dungeon. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these things. Lord, there's imagery here. There's beauty. There's... There's, your word is alive and is powerful and it speaks to us and it draws us in, Lord. And it bids us to take heed and to learn. Lord, it, it's alive, as you say. It's powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, it does divide down between bone and marrow. Lord, it, it does divide down between that which is soulish and that which is spiritual in us, Lord. So, Lord, we we bring our hearts and our lives and our minds before your word, your spirit, Lord, your grace. 
And we pray, Lord, that you would have us a greater and greater measure, Lord. And, uh, not because of us, but in spite of us. We trust you to do that, Lord. We look to you this evening, Lord. And we pray, Lord, in your name, amen.